You know, we live in an age of dramatic court cases which are sensationally covered in the media. Think of O.J. Simpson, Harvey Weinstein, Oscar Pistorius, Slobodan Milosevic, Bill Clinton, impeachment, and currently, of course, Donald Trump. Disgraced celebrities and powerful politicians before judge and jury uh, and with TV crews everywhere. But today, we're going to be thinking about a legal trial that eclipses them all. It's the most written about, it's the most read about, the most spoken about, the most notorious, the most grievous for its dishonesty, and the most shameful for its verdict. This is the two-stage trial of Jesus of Nazareth, and we're going to look at it in depth today, where Jesus is before the religious court, the Sanhedrin, and also in two weeks' time, when Jesus will be before the political powers of Pontius Pilate and Imperial Rome. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we come now to consider your holy word, that you will just help us to be attentive to your voice, to hear what you are saying to us through it. Help us, Lord, to love your word, to be shaped by it, changed by it. And we pray that today we will be different people as a result of engaging with what you have revealed to us in this section of Matthew's Gospel. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read on in Matthew's Gospel, and you'll know if you were here last Sunday, Jesus has now been arrested, and he is on trial for his life. He is staring the death sentence in the face, and he knows that his enemies are intent on handing it to him. So let's read what Matthew says about it. The words will also appear on the screen. Then, I'm reading from the NLT, then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and saw with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. So he sat with the guards. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy. 
Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, You are one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the cock crowed. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the cock crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away and wept bitterly. By the standards of any fair legal system, Jesus' trial was rotten. It just stank of corruption from beginning to end. It was carefully engineered to actually deliver a miscarriage of justice, and it was, in fact, nothing short of a judicial murder. And I found, in studying this over the years, 12 different reasons why Jesus' case should have been thrown out and declared null and void. And here they are, the dirty dozen reasons why Jesus' trial was invalid. Number one, all four Gospels agree that Jesus was arrested without being told at any time on what grounds he was being held. It's illegal. Number two, the arrest was arranged by his judge, the high priest, who thus became the counsel for the prosecution, which was a clear conflict of interest. Number three, the law stipulated that any trial had to be held in daylight hours, but this interrogation took place late at night. In fact, the early hours of the morning. Number four, the proceedings took place on private property, the high priest's home, and not in the public law court as required. Five, the trial began without the accused actually being charged of any offence. Six, the prosecution witness brought no consistent evidence, so the case should have been dismissed. Seven, those whose statements disagreed were not charged with perverting the course of justice by giving false evidence, but they weren't. Eight, Jesus was not released when his accusers were shown to be false witnesses. Nine, the judge failed to call a single testimony for the defence failing in his duty of impartiality. Ten, the judge made no cross-examination at all of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. He just emotionally rejected it out of hand. Eleven, though offering no resistance at any time, Jesus was physically attacked in custody. Thus, he was punished before a verdict was reached. And twelve, the sentence of execution was rushed through for the same day 
allowing no time for an appeal. For any one of those 12 reasons, Jesus should have walked free. But of course, we know that he didn't, don't we? Do you ever feel that the world has treated you really harshly? Do you ever feel that you have been dealt a really unfair hand? Well, if ever you do, remember that Jesus' moral innocence is superior to yours and his mistreatment was worse. And yet he didn't retaliate, he didn't lash out, he didn't even mention his rights, let alone insist on them. He didn't become bitter, he didn't become resentful. And in fact, our Lord's patience in suffering is one of the 10,000 reasons why he is so worthy of our worship. And it's a grace that he wants to give us, a grace of forgiveness. Pete Williams is an African-American from Georgia who in 1985 was convicted of aggravated sodomy, kidnapping, and rape. And he was sentenced to 45 years in prison. He was 22 years old at the time. Williams always claimed that they got the wrong man. And a charity called the Innocence Project took up his case. And after thorough investigations into all the evidence, more evidence came to light. And 21 years after his conviction, they took the case back to court. And this time, Williams was found not guilty. And after singing a few lines of amazing grace, Pete Williams, now aged 44, spent, having, spent half his life in prison, walked out of jail a free man. And he went home to enjoy a nice steak dinner with his family. A few days later, he appeared in a news interview where he said he wasn't angry about spending half his life thus far behind bars. Instead, he showed amazing mercy and forgiveness. He said, anybody can screw up. We all get things wrong, he said. And people asked him, how are you able to be so magnanimous? How can you be so forgiving after all that? And he said it was after his conversion to Christ in prison. He said, that has been my rock in my life. And it's noteworthy, I think, that Pete Williams did not say, if there was a God of love, he would never have let this happen to me. His faith in Jesus, so wronged, so mistreated himself, carried him through years of being falsely labelled as a sex offender. And it kept his hope alive that one day his innocence would come to light. Amazing story. Well, Jesus' hearing before the chief priests pivots on one central question. And it comes in verse 63, where the high priest, the man in charge of the temple, he says to Jesus, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And people today are still judging for themselves and deciding what their answer is to this basic question. And it's the most important question in life, actually. Do I agree that Jesus is actually who he says he is? 
See, your entire life's destiny in this world and the next depends on the answer you give to that question. And everybody has to make their minds up. Have you made your minds up yet on who Jesus is? Plenty of people already have. More books have been written about Jesus than about anybody else in history. Who do you think Jesus is? And if you cannot give a clear answer to that question, why don't you consider doing Alpha, which starts earlier next month? It will really help you think through this most crucial of questions and many other uh, questions besides. So anyway, the trial begins, and by now it's probably well gone midnight. Jesus is led into the high priest's home from the Garden of Gethsemane, a few hundred meters away. And Peter, we read, is cautiously following at a distance. And they look for evidence to convict him, but as verse 60 shows, nobody can find a thing wrong with him. No testimony can be used, Matthew says. The other Gospels explain that people came forward with made-up stories to accuse him, but all their stories contradicted each other. It's a pig's breakfast of a prosecution. Absolute circus. In verse 61, they misquote him, changing the meaning of the words he spoke. They cannot even agree about what he didn't say. And so the high priest looks at Jesus and says, well, what have you got to say for yourself after all this? Now, Jesus has just listened to a litany of fabricated evidence, vague statements, pure fiction, fake news, and inaccurate quotes, and he gives it the contempt it deserves. He just offers no answer at all. He just stays silent. And so, as I said, following this, as I said a bit earlier, the big question comes just after that in verse 63, and here it is. I demand, in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So we're going to break this down into two sections. Firstly, are you the Messiah? That is, are you the Christ, the anointed one? Are you the chosen one that we Jews have been long waiting for? Is it you? For many centuries, they had been awaiting a savior, a, a kind of hero deliverer. And the prophet said that one day he would come. And every little baby boy born into the Jewish nation, everyone wondered as the baby boy was born, is this the one? Is this the special one that's going to be our deliverer? Will this be this great leader who's going to change our fortunes forever? The Messiah. And so the high priest says to Jesus, well then, is it you? Are you this figure we've heard about? You've got quite a following, it seems. News about you has reached us in Jerusalem from where you come from up north. People say you might be our Messiah. People are wondering, are you the son of David? Is this who you think you are? The thing is, as we've seen already through Matthew's Gospel, these leaders have already made up their mind that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. Everything about Jesus, in their eyes, is wrong. He heals people on the Sabbath. It's not allowed. Can't do that on the Sabbath. He eats without ceremonially washing his hands. It's against their rules. He touches contagious lepers, 
which is a public health risk. You can't go around doing that. He mixes with outcasts, tax collectors and sinners. He mixes with all the wrong people, in other words. He even walks on water, showing a complete disregard for public health and safety. Everything he does, they complain about, they find fault with, because he is much more popular than them, which is intolerable for them. So they know, in their minds, one thing for sure, this man, whatever else he is, cannot be the Messiah. And like so many people today, tragically, they write Jesus off without even bothering to investigate for themselves. So are you the Messiah? And then he says, are you the Son of God? In other words, do you claim some kind of unique and special relationship with Almighty God, the God of our ancestors? Have you come to earth from heaven? Are you in some senses God himself in human form? And Jesus' answer this time is clear and it's emphatic. He said, you said it. That's exactly who I am. In other words, I'm I'm not just a wise teacher. I'm not just a charismatic leader. I'm not just a remarkable healer. I'm not just a social revolutionary. Jesus is all those things, but that is not the reason why they killed him. They killed him because he said, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And what Jesus says here in verse 64 is not ambiguous. It is not enigmatic. Certainly not to the men who are interrogating him. He's actually claiming here the identity, the very identity of a figure in the book of Daniel standing at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is who Jesus says he is. So in Daniel chapter 7, there's a new slide coming up right now, written about 550 BC, there's this dramatic vision of eternity with the revelation of a powerful figure from heaven. So that points to some kind of divine being, clearly. But he's also described as being like a son of man. In other words, this divine figure is going to take on human form. He's going to have flesh and blood. He's going to be one of us. And this great figure comes with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, who gives him authority and glory and sovereign power. So who is it? Who is this figure? Is this some kind of, maybe it's like an angel or a big angel, an archangel or something, some kind of created spiritual being called to be God's messenger. Could it be that? No, it cannot be, because it goes on to say, all nations and peoples, every language, will worship him. Everybody should bow down and adore and worship this figure. Angels in the Bible always say, whoa, don't bow down to me. Don't worship me. I'm just a messenger. Worship God alone. This figure is worthy of worship. And look, it says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be Destroyed. This is who Jesus is saying, I am. This figure rules an unshakable, omnipotent, invincible kingdom that will never end. 
Jesus says, that's me, that's who I am. This is as big as it gets. So in summary, what Jesus is saying here is saying this, almighty and ever-living God is going to come as flesh and blood into human history and everybody will exalt and revere and honour him one day. Jesus looks straight at them and says, this is who I am. And that is why the high priest tears his clothes in absolute horror and he shouts blasphemy. That's why they condemn him to death. That's why they spit in his face. That's why they blindfold him and tease him and beat him up. What a thing. What a thing. God himself, the creator of this vast universe, the author of life, the source of beauty and everything good comes to earth. And what do we do? We, our human race, sit on a bench with a wig and gown and we put him in the dock. And we break every rule in the book. We rig the trial. We smash the gavel on the desk and pronounce him guilty. When I wonder how much of these proceedings Peter gets wind of outside in the courtyard... I wonder if there are leaks about how things are going on inside the high priest's home. And they're leaking outside the house, maybe. Does Peter hear raised voices within? I'm sure he heard that. Blasphemy! I'm sure he heard that. All we know is that there are three occasions where people blow his cover. A girl recognizes his face in verse 69 as someone who was walking around with Jesus earlier that week. Didn't I see you two together? It's late. Peter's tired. He's stressed. I don't know what you're talking about, he says, in front of everybody. And the other Gospels tell us that at this point he moves away from the light of the fire into a darker corner so people cannot see him to recognize him. Then in verse 71, after wondering, where have I seen that bloke before? The girl's colleague remembers that he was hanging around with the other disciples. Yeah, she said, in in earshot of everybody, this man was within Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, he was with him, Jesus of Nazareth. I saw him. I'm sure it was him. Peter's heart begins to beat faster. His throat tightens. His hands begin to sweat. And again, he says, no, definitely not. It's just some bloke who looks like me. Got the wrong man. And he swears on oath that it's a case of mistaken identity. And then in verse 73, this time there's a group of bystanders and they just notice the distinctive way he talks with his northern accent. No one talks like that around here. Must be you with your northern accent. And at this point, Peter absolutely loses it. God damn it, a curse Beyond me if I'm lying. I don't even know the man. I've never met him in my life. He means nothing at all to me. And the instant the words leave his lips, a cock grows. And Peter buries his face in his hands and he heads off into the night. He's a broken man. Tears running down his face. What have I just done? Jesus is his best friend. 
and who changed his life. For three years they've been together, they've eaten together, they've laughed and cried together, they've traveled everywhere together, seen amazing things together. Peter has seen thousands spellbound, spellbound by Jesus' teaching. He's seen Jesus cast out demons. He's seen them heal the sick, including his own mother-in-law, in his own home. He's seen Jesus raise the dead. At Jesus' command, Peter remembers letting down nets into a lake that yielded no fish at all, all night, and then being unable to haul in the catch. Such was its size. At Jesus' command, Peter remembers he stepped out of a boat and actually began to walk on water. And then, as his fears get the better of his faith, Jesus saves him from drowning. He's seen it all. He's done it all. Peter. Jesus is his leader. He's his hero. A few hours earlier, Michael reminded us last week, Jesus says to the twelve, you'll all fall away. And Peter says, no, everyone else, but not me. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And Jesus says, oh, but you will, Peter. Not once, not twice, three times, before daybreak, before the cock crows. And listen, God knows that we will all let him down. He knows when, he knows how badly we're going to do it. He knows where we will all fall into sin, and he knows how. He knows how wretched we will feel when it happens. He knows how estranged from him we can become. And whenever that happens, the devil loves to bring condemnation and shame and heaviness. Every time we let God down, that's what the devil wants to do. He'll say, you're such a failure. Call yourself a Christian. You always mess things up, don't you? You're pathetic. You'll never change. This is who you are. God doesn't love you. And how many of us have done what Peter did here, honestly? Someone asks, oh, what did you do for the weekend? And you want to tell them about a time you, you were in church yesterday. And uh, you say, oh, well, this is and that, just, you know, stuff. And you feel gutted, you feel sick. Why did I keep quiet? Why didn't I tell them I was in church yesterday? God spoke to me. It's great being in the presence of God. Well, if you can relate to that, then let today be a day for tears like it was for Peter. And make the decision to return to what it was like when your faith was young. Well, as I close, I want to end on a note of hope. When you read the Bible through, you see that however you feel, however you feel you've let the side down, or however unqualified you are, you are in very good company all the way through Scripture. Noah, for example, got himself so drunk that he exposed himself to his daughters. Abraham was so ancient, the Bible said he was as good as dead. Sarah was impatient. Jacob was a con man. Moses made pathetic excuses. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon was insecure. Elijah was a depressive. David was an adulterer and murderer. 
Jonah ran away from God. Zacchaeus was a crook. Mary Magdalene had seven demons. Martha was a warrior. Thomas was a doubter. Paul was an accomplice to murder. And Lazarus was four days dead. But all these people are Bible heroes. Isn't that wonderful? All of them, like Peter, were flawed. But all of them had a future and a hope from the God of grace. Hallelujah. Because as someone said, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. The 19th century Church of Scotland minister, Robert Murray Machane, used to say this, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So as we come to communion this morning, look to Jesus, the innocent one. Look to the Messiah, the chosen one, at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He's coming again, you know, on the clouds of heaven. And to him belongs authority and glory and majesty and sovereign power. Amen. Amen.